Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, are those phones off? Very good. Good afternoon and welcome to International Perspective Series, jointly presented by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the American Jewish Committee. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council, and let me extend a very warm and special welcome to our C-SPAN viewers and invite you to learn more about our respective organizations by visiting the World Affairs Council website at dfwworld.org and the American Jewish Committee's homepage at AJC.org. Today's event is generally sponsored by the law firm DLA Piper US LLP. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Barbara Olchonsky, a leading figure and driving force in international human rights and humanitarian law. Since 2007, Dr. Olchonsky has been the Lee Kaplan Visiting Professor of Human Rights at Stanford Law where she also received her law degree. She is known around the world for her courageous work on the 2004 Raul versus Bush case, Rasul, excuse me, Rasul versus Bush case, in which the Supreme Court overruled a lower court ruling and found that American courts have jurisdiction over claims brought by Guantanamo detainees who are foreign nationals. The New York Times called this the most important civil liberties case in over half a century. Previously, she led the Global Justice Initiative at the Center for Constitutional Rights, devoting her efforts to litigating civil and human rights cases. She has written extensively about presidential war powers, and her work is certainly relevant today in a post-9-11 world. As President Obama wrestles with the closure of Guantanamo while expanding at the same time the prison in Afghanistan at Bagram, there is so much for us to question. In a contemporary atmosphere of expanded executive influence and an international arena blurred by terrorism and homeland defense, Olshansky's voice is one that merits your serious consideration. Please join me now in welcoming Professor Olshansky. Thank you all so much um, for having me here today. Um, thank you to the American Jewish Congress and to the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. I, I am really and truly honored to be here. Um, it's, uh, I, I love the World Affairs Council and attend its events in San Francisco and um, really never imagined that I, was, that I would be among the honored um, few that get to speak uh, and address these issues. Um, so thank you all very much. Um, so um, let me make a confession right up front, which is um, the wonderful topic that was chosen, I think, by, by Jim Falk, was chosen a, a year ago. Um, it doesn't make it any less relevant, but I, I think I've expanded it since that time, and I will try to get through um, my comments 
um, and leave uh, plenty of time for questions. So um, to begin, we know, I think now, all of us, that there were many actions taken by the executive branch um, during the last administration that were justified as being inherent in the president's commander-in-chief powers. And let us be clear about what I mean by that. These are powers that are nowhere written. They have never, by and large, been exercised by any other president, and they all, every single one of them, were unconstitutional and in many cases also violated the laws of war and are binding international human rights obligations. What are some of these actions? They include the deliberate disregard of constitutional constraints on a broad-scale immigration roundup, racial and, and religious profiling of immigrants, foreign students, and foreign visitors immediately after 9-11, the writing of interim regulations that bypassed any scrutiny and violated existing law, the use of executive orders to circumvent the legislative branch, the, the, the disregard of clear rulings of the judicial branch, including most frequently the decisions of the United States Supreme Court, the deprivation of U.S. citizens to their right to petition for a writ of habeas corpus, that is, the right to challenge the legality of their detention in court, the imprisonment of people around the world without charge or trial, the deliberate disavowal of the laws of war, the imprisonment of people outside the United States with the deliberate intention of evading the scrutiny of the legislature of this country and the judicial branch, and the use of secret prisons and the creation of a status, that of enemy combatant, which allegedly deprived prisoners of all rights and permitted the CIA under its explicit direction to interrogate people using methods that are unconstitutional in the United States. Although I don't have time today to speak in detail about all of these events, I thought I would try and give you an overview of what I have learned from my work as one of the many, many lawyers who tried to hold back the tsunami that threatened, and in many cases succeeded, to disavow the rule of law, undermine the fundamental moral principles that our republic was based upon, set back the causes of international law, and injure <clears throat> so many people, not only without justification, but also in direct violation of the law. I, I know that some people here will be upset about what I'm going to say today. And please believe me when I say that I am really and truly deeply sorry for this situation. But in truth, I can't help it. Um, I can't help it not only because it's the absolute truth, but I can't help it because 
I found that so many people don't know the full extent of the truth. <clears throat> I am a constitutional lawyer by training, and I will tell you now that every single thing that I tell you today is demonstrably provable and would satisfy any court in the land. This, however, does not make it any easier for me to say, nor does it make it any easier for you to hear. And on a personal note, I would like you to know that it is the rare occasion um, that I am able to speak about what has happened to our great democracy without feeling a terrible loss and without feeling responsible for the harm that we have done to our country's reputation, to the laws that our countries worked so hard to shape, like the Geneva Conventions, and most importantly, to the people we have damaged beyond repair around the world. The only thing that has saved me from a deep despair that I think I might not have ever recovered from after eight years of this work is that we, the people, the, the people that are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, we the people as a nation have woken up and perhaps we've decided that it's time to take the reins back and steer this country to its rightful place in the world community of nations. We were once a very bright beacon that lit the path for states around the world to, who were seeking to justify, to build a just and fair society. We can rekindle that light, but it takes vigilance, constant vigilance and hard work and a willingness to call others to the task. That is what I ask of you today. You have the power, all of you here have the power to call others to the service of restoring the moral underpinnings of our democracy. You must use it. Please, that's what I ask of you. So what has this looked like on the ground from September 11th? After September 11th, this country moved into an unprecedented period of operation by executive fiat. There has been an alarming usurpation of executive authority, evidenced by law enforcement actions, executive orders, secret and public, unbelievable pressure on those in Congress to enact sweeping legislation eroding our civil liberties, and so that we don't think the blame is only on the executive, nearly complete congressional acquiescence to the executive's exercise of those powers. This unjust and very dangerous claim to power threatens a cornerstone of our American democracy, the separation of powers principle. The division of powers into three separate and independent branches of government was the result of a very deliberate effort by our framers. It really doesn't take much examination of the Federalist Papers to know that 
the usurpation of power, the aggregation of power by the executive at the expense of other branches was the single most concern of the framers to our Constitution. It is mentioned by everyone. It is in every paper. And if, if you ask me, I will tell you honestly, did I ever think that I would be reading the Federalist Papers so frequently? No. <laughs> In fact, what you have before you is someone who felt they missed the 60s civil rights movement and thought she was going to be a granola-crunching lawyer in one of the smallest law firms that are still anchored in the 1960s civil rights movement. Somehow, <clears throat> in the course of this battle, I became one of the people that was standing squarely on the Constitution, addressing an administration, through the courts mostly, that was so far out on the extreme that even the Supreme Court could not understand the arguments that were being made before it. What did this look like <clears throat> in action, it looked to start um, like nothing so much of a very, as a very scary roundup of immigrants from all over the country. By September 12th, the Joint Terrorism Task Force was already in place. People were being rounded up from their homes all over the United States on the basis of uncorroborated tips that were phoned into hot hotlines set up by the FBI all around the country. What this looked like is if there was one person at your table that was a, a target a of, of suspicion, the entire table was taken into custody. The way that we know this now, um, and we did file a lawsuit on this, is that unbelievably, Glenn Fine, the Inspector General, from the Office of the Inspector General in the Justice Department, issued a series of reports. I have never met Glenn Fine. He's going to be my hero for the rest of my life. Um, what he found was quite amazing. We alleged in a complaint that there had been these massive sweeps of people without reasonable cause, that people were taken into custody, that they remained in custody until they could be proven innocent of any terrorism charges against them or any affiliation. Well, talk about stand, putting standards on their head. All of a sudden, they were all guilty of terrorism until they could prove themselves innocent. What Glenn Fine found um, is what we experienced and, and alleged that the people in the jails and prisons across the country were instructed by John Ashcroft and the people under him, by our attorney general at the time, to lie to the attorneys, to the consulates, the foreign consulates, and to the families that knocked on the door of any prison in the country. You don't have to take my word on this. It's in the report that's available online in the Justice Department. For six weeks, we couldn't locate a person in the country. 
despite thousands of calls that came into our office. It was an unbelievable situation. We started with local precinct houses in the police departments. We went to the INS offices. We went to the main police headquarters in, in the cities. We went to the FBI offices, and we found nothing. And the only way we found information is that somebody got arrested on a normal criminal charge and told us that there were other people in prison that were there just because they had immigrated from Jordan or Bahrain or Yemen. And then we could seek to get into those prisons and seek to represent those individuals. Their cases, by the way, were never logged on any court's docket. This is unheard of in the history of the United States. And what happened is we represented these individuals in what we thought were the main issues, immigration proceedings, to a person of all the people that we knew. And this was a representation of about 1,500 people. We don't know how many there were. We will never know. The position of John Ashcroft was that the Freedom of Information Act had been suspended in perpetuity that we would never be able to find out because this was a war, a war on terror, and during the wartime, he had the right to suspend the Information Act. We represented, along with others, about 1,500 people around the country. We went through the immigration proceedings. The judges were quite fair. They're actually very good in those proceedings. They asked the individuals, are you ready to go home? Do you have a plane ticket? Are there people here that can vouch for you? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so ordered. You are permitted to leave the country as soon as you can. they can facilitate the arrangement for you to get to the airport. None of those people left after those judicial decisions, not one. Most of the people were held for many months. They were beaten. They were interrogated many, many hours a day. They were deprived of sleep. They were subject to extreme temperature variations. This was really the very beginning. Some of these individuals ended up in prison for over two years until the FBI and others in the Joint Terrorism Task Force determined that they were innocent of any connection to terrorism. For us, we sent many people back to their countries. They went back through nighttime deportation uh, procedures out of a small town in Louisiana called Waterproof, Louisiana, on um, commercial planes that the United States commissioned to take people back. And we were not very careful about who we sent back. We sent back, erroneously, American citizens. We sent back citizens of the United States who had come here and been granted political asylum from the country to which we sent them. We made a great number of mistakes. And in response to most of the outcry about this, that people had, must have done terrible things, to a person, 
not a single individual that we represented was ever charged with a crime, not one. They were picked up for civil immigration violations, a simple visa overstay. One of them was an a very good example of the mistakes we made. It was a Dominican couple who overstayed their tourist visa so they could see cats on Broadway. But we made far worse mistakes than that. What we had after, well, during this period was a range of actions by the executive branch that caused an avalanche um, in the country. On November, so on September 12th is when the immigration roundup happened. On November 13th, 2001, we had the executive order on military detention. This was the basis of the military commission system that has three times been found unconstitutional and been reconstituted again and again. It is also the system that when it was put together caused nine panels of prosecutors. These prosecutors, people that are supposed to be representing the United States to prosecute people in Guantanamo, nine panels of them quit and refused to participate in what they thought was a fundamentally unconstitutional, unfair, and illegal process. This is the first step, really, in the unraveling of the United States' commitment to the Geneva Conventions and the laws of war. Although the Military Commissions Act of 2001 doesn't mention the word enemy combatant. <clears throat> we have the creation of a new status that formed the basis of the Bush administration's policy. This new status is really a term that is plucked out of context from a World War II decision called Ex Parte Kieran. The decision has to do with seven Nazi saboteurs that landed on Long Island, took off their uniforms, put on civilian clothes with the intention of attacking our military installations in the United States. Among two of the individuals were people that were born in America but had been raised and drafted into the German army. One of those individuals landed and decided he couldn't do anything and went to the FBI, which foiled the operation. What never came to light is that Herbert Hoover decided he wanted the credit for that operation. It never became clear that these individuals turned themselves in. What we did is we decided, well, they really don't deserve the writ of habeas corpus, but we're going to give it to them, sort of. We're going to give them a very short hearing in the Supreme Court after they've had a military hearing, and we're going to make the decision. This is under pressure from President Roosevelt, and then the court's going to go on hiatus, and when it returns, then it can write the decision. 
during the hiatus is when we executed these men. It's a very sorry chapter in our legal history as well. The reason, the only reason it became important at all is that at one point in the case, the court actually makes a mistake and uses the term enemy combatant. It's a redundancy. A combatant is a soldier. If it's the enemy's soldier, it's the enemy's combatant. That's all there is to it. Um, either you're our combatant or you're their combatant. What enemy combatant became, however, is a status that in the eyes of the Bush administration permitted them to pick up any person from any country in the world at any time, declare them an enemy combatant, and lock them in executive detention without charge or trial forever. And lest you think that this is only outside the United States, we did this to people who were U.S. citizens. I think people don't quite realize that because it happened so early on, Jose Padilla, or Padilla as he likes to be referred to, is an American citizen. He was born in Puerto Rico. He grew up most of his life here in the mainland United States. We seized him coming back from a trip overseas when he landed in O'Hare Airport in Chicago going to visit his son. He wasn't armed. He didn't have any plans on him. We didn't have proof, really, of anything that he was planning. What we did, though, is we decided to hold him first as a material witness. This was a very new use of a statute that's been in existence for a long time. Federal prosecutors have the ability to hold witnesses that they think might flee, who don't want to testify. Um, just as an aside, I was held as one of those <laughs> during my work on these cases. Um, Jose Padilla was named a material witness and was flown back to New York um, to be held there as a material witness in a prosecution against ter some terrorists. We really were never clear on what th that you know, prosecution was, where the indictment was. That was never clear to us. What did happen is he was appointed a habeas counsel um, from a panel, the way the court usually does it. However, two days after he was appointed, on a Sunday, in the evening, people from the Department of Defense called the judge on the case, Judge Michael Mukasey, asked for a meeting handed him a piece of paper that said that the President of the United States had de declared Mr. Padilla an enemy combatant, and the judge handed Mr. Padilla over from civilian custody to military custody. Sometimes I think all of us, me in particular, don't understand what the ramifications of a case of, like the Padilla case is. Padilla was a civilian. He was always a civilian. Even if he was planning to do something bad, he was still a civilian. We put him in military custody, in solitary confinement, 
in a naval base, actually on a ship, where we did not get, let a lawyer get to him for three years. And even then, the reason we got to meet with him at all is that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals came down so hard on, on Judge Mukasey that he really felt he didn't have an option. It was really against his stout refusal that he had to allege access. What happens to Padilla during the, his imprisonment? This is quite a story as well. Mr. Padilla was first charged with being part of an al-Qaeda cell. That really didn't last very long. He was then charged with um, working with a group of affiliated terrorists to create a dirty bomb that would be released in New York City, presumably something that was radioactive. Well, there wasn't really evidence for that. The next accusation was that he was going to set fire to apartment buildings somehow by aggregating the natural gas that is used to heat apartment buildings in New York City. When it came down to it, the final declaration that was supported, that was put in support of his detention, was a man by Michael Mobbs, who was a special assistant um, to the Secretary of Defense. Michael Mobbs was an honest man and said that the two individuals that had given their testimony against Mr. Padilla one of whom was severely addicted to heroin and other drugs and had not been able to kick the habit and that his affidavit was unreliable. The other individual recanted his testimony. There was, in fact, no evidence. In the end, when the case went back to the Fourth Circuit, which is where it was being held, um, because the case was brought in um, South Carolina. The judge, a very, very conservative judge, a very judicious man, very careful, Mr. Michael Luddig, when he saw that the indictment, the new indictment against Mr. Padilla, accused him of donating money to a charity that somehow found its way to some terrorist organization somewhere in the world, Mr. Luddig said, I refuse to let this case go forward. I will not participate. This is an outrageous circumstance. Clearly, the government has tried to use claim after claim after claim, none of which have been true, to put this man in jail for some reason that is unbeknownst to us. Nevertheless, Mr. Padilla went to prison for 20 years. I guess one could say the Justice Department did a good job in sending him away, but I don't know what for. Mr. Padilla is a man who has an extremely low IQ who spent a great deal of his life in trouble in and out of prison, 
unable to hold a job. For some reason, I think Mr. Padilla was in the wrong place at the wrong time, or perhaps met the wrong people on a trip overseas. I don't know. I, I have a very hard time believing that we needed to put him away for donating money to a charity that was very attenuated from any terrorist organization. I, I tell you these stories not because they're special circumstances, but because it's what we've done all over the world. In Guantanamo, we seized many, many people. And we seized them under a variety of circumstances. Of course, we seized some from the battlefield. Of course. And of course, some of them are bad guys. I am not that person that will say everyone was innocent there. That is not me. But the vast majority of them, and once again, the evidence bears this out, and, and so do the statements, ironically, of very high-level Army officers. Major General Lucenti, who spent a tour of duty in Guantanamo, left saying that he knew that personally that over 80% of the people didn't belong there that they were running from any battle and running from the Taliban rather than running towards them. So what, what does this look like in Guantanamo? Here's what we found. There was an unbelievable effort led by the CIA to give millions of dollars to tribal warlords throughout Afghanistan and Pakistan and encourage people to turn anyone they thought might be al-Qaeda or Taliban soldiers into the authorities and hand them over to the, the U.S. coalition, and they would be paid anywhere from $5,000 to $100,000. $5,000 alone is enough for a family to live on for perhaps 20 years in Afghanistan. $100,000 makes you an incredibly wealthy man or woman. And how do we know this? It's been admitted. We have the posters. We've talked to the CIA agent who went with the bags of money. This isn't, this isn't something that's made up. It's on the record now. And so we got a lot of people who many people said, were al-Qaeda fighters or Taliban soldiers. But we got them because those people who turned them in got paid a lot of money. There are also lots of people that just didn't belong in detention at all. And, and this is where a part of the story is extraordinarily difficult for me to tell. The United States picked up many children that it brought to Guantanamo. Camp Iguana, one of the seven camps that make up Guantanamo, was built for the children. And the children were as young as four and as old as 15. They 
A group of them, we managed to get out very early. Four of them were sent home. No, their families were not in Guantanamo. They were not with their families. They were picked up on or near the battlefield. The decision, I guess, was made that we didn't know what else to do with them or we couldn't figure out what else to do with them. I don't know why that happened. I know that it traumatized those children so badly that I couldn't sleep for weeks afterwards. And I found out only three weeks ago that Secretary Rumsfeld lied to us and to the International Committee of the Red Cross and that there were 15 more children that he never told us about that were there from the very beginning. I don't, I don't see this as American actions. I have to say, I don't think that if you asked any person on the street in this country, maybe with the exception of Donald Rumsfeld and Richard Cheney and David Addington, I don't think there's an American out there that would think this is okay. That is not who we are in this country. It has never been who we are. And I don't understand how they were allowed to do that. There are still many children in detention. There are children in detention in Bagram Air Base that we run in Afghanistan. There, there were as many as 2,500 children in detention in Iraq. There are many, many left, and we are still fighting to get them out. I don't know what to say either about the United States' position that contrary to all international law, when you are 15 or 16, you become an adult and reach the age of majority and can be put in with the general population in prisons that we have around the world. Under international law, it is 18. What we are supposed to be doing with children is providing care and education and immediately reintegrating them in their home country with their families. We didn't do that. And I, once again, I don't know why. When we talk about Guantanamo, um, we talk about a situation that was a very deliberate effort by the administration to hold people outside the scrutiny of Congress, of the courts, and of us, the people, the people that are in the Declaration. It is memorialized. This discussion is open for anyone to see. There's a book called The Torture Papers. It's, it was compiled by Josh Dreitel. In it, you can see memo after memo from the Office of White House Counsel. You can also see the objections of Secretary of State uh, Colin Powell, who says, I was the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What you are doing is impossible. What you are doing is putting our soldiers at risk around the world, putting people, Americans, at risk wherever they travel, undermining the Geneva Conventions, which we fought 
so hard to put into place as a humanitarian constraint against the barbarity that happened in the Second World War. What are you doing? In response, Alberto Gonzalez says, your ideas are quaint and outmoded, and we are overruling you. And so we put into place a situation where neither the soldiers of the Taliban government, an existing government that, yes, was fairly well detested around the world, but nevertheless a recognized government, their soldiers were never brought before a hearing. The one thing the Geneva Conventions do at the outset is they create Article 5 battlefield hearings. This is the one thing everyone needs to know. What should have happened and what we have done in almost every conflict, even in Iraq we have been doing this, even in the first Persian Gulf War we did this. It's a battlefield hearing with three of our soldiers where we examine the individual, the circumstances under, we, under his arrest, and we listen to him, we listen, look at whatever evidence there is, and we decide, is this a civilian? Is this a combatant, a soldier working for the Taliban? Or is it a combatant, I mean a civilian who took up arms unlawfully? And if it's a civilian who's innocent, they have to be released. If it's somebody that worked for the Taliban who was a soldier, they're a prisoner of war, whether we like it or not. And they have to be treated as such. And we get to keep them in detention for the duration of the international armed conflict. Whatever people heard about that we would have to release them is not true. The civilian who took up arms, whether they were al-Qaeda or not, were guilty of crimes for which we also could have held them. And even people that we thought were about to commit dangerous activities, who we thought were immediate threat to our security, we could have arrested them as well. There weren't constraints on us. We could have done that and taken all of those people out of the conflict. But we didn't do that. No one got an Article 5 hearing. And when people tell you, what did we do, the few attorneys at the Center for Constitutional Rights, what were we seeking when we filed that first challenge on behalf of the very, two very young men from um, the UK, UK citizens, and two men from Australia? What were we doing? We were first and only asking the United States to hold Article 5 battlefield hearings. We weren't asking for the writ of habeas corpus to extend there. We just wanted the hearings that got people, that ensured that people were treated in conformity with the Geneva Conventions. That's all we wanted. And what happened is we kept people there for seven years without charge, without trial, without hope. We subjected them to terrible treatment and conditions. So terrible that FBI agents that came down as part of what they call the biscuit teams, the special teams for interrogation, 
almost to a person, every FBI agent refused to participate in the interrogation. They did what they call stand back. And they wrote letters and emails to their superiors in Washington saying, this is not what we do in America. This is not what the FBI does. This will not get us accurate information, and we should not be doing it. This is from the FBI, the people that are known all over the world for being able to interrogate people and get information. And their uniform conclusion was that we would never get information that we could rely on. Information coerced under torture is inherently unreliable. There is not a person in our FBI that will tell you otherwise, not one. And yet we did this. We did terrible things. We subjected people to very long-term solitary confinement, extremes of temperature. We locked them to a ring in a floor in a room that reached 127 degrees without food or water. We blasted them with music day and night to deprive them of sleep. We beat them, senseless. And then in the end, when they went on hunger strike, we force-fed them with nasal gastric tubes that were so large that they ripped people's noses. It was a staggering set of activities to visit upon people that, for the most part, had no information at all. And ironically, the people that might have, the 20 or so individuals that are Wahhabist, they refused representation. They did not want to participate in, West, in a Western legal system. They wanted to be known under Sharia, under Islamic law, and to be tried under that. And they didn't want us. And I'll be perfectly frank, I certainly didn't want to force myself on them. Those individuals were so strong that fairly early on, there was, you know, a decision that we're not going to get a lot of out, out of them, I think. It was the other people that really, I think, suffered even more. These were the people, the, these people, when I started the case, there were 756. Somebody asked me last night, how many were there all together? I don't know. I, I don't think we'll ever know. At some point, Secretary Rumsfeld and then CIA Director George Tenet admitted to hiding people in a separate place in Guantanamo so that the ICRC, the, the International Committee of the Red Cross, could not find them. They were left off of our internee roles as detainees of the United States. We do not know their names, and I doubt we will ever know their names, nor do we know where they are. How many? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. 800? 1,000? I don't know. Just, as long as, just the same way that I don't know how many immigrants we kept in detention and then deported in the middle of the night. It is a very similar situation 
unfortunately in Bagram. And there, we have very little information about what happens. We're, we are not allowed in. The press are not allowed in. We did manage to get one young man out of prison, a very young journalist, an Afghan journalist who had been working very closely for Canadian television um, on the ground, shooting pictures, working with a reporter, who I, I suppose was imprisoned because they thought he had he had knowledge of local Taliban contacts. It took us 10 months to get him out of detention. The stories about, not a story, the facts of how he was treated, I won't repeat. I can't repeat when people are sitting at a table with food. Um, it's horrible. And we have 1,615 people there. And, oh, sorry, 615. And I know I'm about to be taken off. I, I um, have time for questions. Okay. And I, I'll close with, with this. There are many things that um, the Obama administration is trying to fix. Um, a prohibition on torture it is the single thing that has made the happiest I've ever been in my life. A commitment to the Geneva Conventions, not only for the rest of the world to believe in them again, but for us to believe in them and for our soldiers to benefit from them. These are things that I have been waiting for, but there are a lot of problems that need to be unraveled, and it's going to be a difficult time. And that means what we need is everyone's voice heard. We need a lot of brains thinking about it, and we need to return to the country that we were the one that stood on those moral underpinnings that the world so admired. Thank you. We have a question right there. If you'd wait for the microphone. Hello. Um, President Obama has said that he wants to close Guantanamo. What are the impediments to that? How, is, how will that work out as a practical matter? So there are um, a little more than 200 people in Guantanamo. Um, some of them, if I have, as I have said, are people that I think the United States would very much like to try. Um, whether they can, let's just put that to the side for one second. Um, the remainder. Uh, I think perhaps there's some cause for concern about their political convictions. Um, I don't think uh, there is information uh, that would lead to the trial of, of, the, of the, the remainder of those individuals. So what is the barrier? <clears throat> well, many of them are Yemeni citizens. And the government of, of Yemen, as we have sent people back, have have agreed with the United States' policy to hold them, initially, to hold them in perpetuity until the United States says it's okay to release them. Really not the best due process standards that we're demanding of another country. Um, but in fact, what has happened is after a year or so of detention, these individuals are released. They've, 
The government's position has been that they were in detention for at least seven years in Guantanamo. They also they served another in in Yemen, and then they should be released. What I think the Obama administration would like is to set up a um, rigorous reintegration program, something that looks akin to what they have in Saudi Arabia, although I think there's aspects to it that could be much improved. Um, and so that when we are sending people back who, are, who have given us any reason for concern, what we have in place is something that gives them a place back in their society. It means helping them find a job. It means having imams talk to them about what Islam really means. It means helping them reassociate themselves with their families. And it probably means helping them with some kind of psychological, psychiatric care. Many of the people that are left in, Afga- in Guantanamo are very seriously ill. Uh, there are some that are completely decompensated. There are some that are catatonic, that cannot care for themselves at all. So for many people, it means having an infrastructure on the ground in the country where they are going to that can provide care. And in some of these countries, that infrastructure does not exist. And so there are those types of hurdles. Um, For the people that we would like to try, there are also very difficult hurdles, probably greater hurdles. There is not really a military officer in this country, I don't believe, who is willing to participate in a trial where the information has been coerced under torture. And unfortunately, that is what has happened. It leaves very little evidence for us to present to any court of law, whether that's a military tribunal, uh, a court martial, um, a new type of military commission, or a civilian criminal court. We don't have a lot to go on in order to prosecute those people. And that is a difficult hurdle. And there is the start of a discussion that is, to me, very concerning about whether we want to institute now something called preventive detention. Administrative detention to hold people, how long, forever? I don't know. And I don't know, I don't want that to be the solution. We kept these people for so long without charge or trial, and we treated them so miserably that I don't think we can do that to them and, and, be, and call ourselves humane. I don't have the answer to that, and it's something that you know all of us working on this issue are thinking about every day and talking with people in other countries who have dealt with terrorism all the time. You know. And on that note, I wish we had more time. I want to thank you for bringing these issues to the forefront and for your service. I hope you'll stay to visit with our guests. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us, and we'll see you at the next council program. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web 
at www.dfwworld.org.